If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Marcus Licinius Crassus was Rome's richest man. His wealth brought him political power and military success. But it didn't always translate into popularity. Following his death, legend has it that his mouth was stuffed with molten gold as a condemnation of his greed. Author Peter Stottard has just written a new biography of Crassus, and he spoke to Rob Attar about one of the most fascinating figures of the late Roman Republic. Your book is subtitled The First Tycoon. Would you therefore say that Crassus was a man ahead of his time? The tycoon word didn't really come into English until the 1860s because it was a name for a guy who had more power than he seemed to have. When the Americans came to Japan, um, they were told that there's no point in talking to the emperor because the emperor didn't have any power, though they had a nice letter for him. The um, the shogun was the guy who had the power, uh, but the shogun just meant kind of general, and the Americans weren't very impressed by that. They wanted to see the top boy. And so um, they invented, well, they used this word of, of theirs called tycoon, which meant someone who's more powerful than you, you think he is. And that was picked up in America. Abraham Lincoln was called a tycoon, you know, it was called a tycoon by his staff. It included politics, sort of wealth, power, politics in all its different manifestations. The interesting thing about Crassus is that we know a lot about Roman generals and Roman orators and people who do politics in the way that we've, you know, come to think of as, as Roman. But Crassus was a an early 
modern man in the sense that he used a lot of what we perhaps might now call sort of the softer powers. The, you know, he used money, he used bribes, he we played different politicians off against each other. He gained a fortune partly by politics and he used it for politics while other people were going around um, conquering other countries. So you talk there about Crassus gaining a fortune. Does that mean that he, he wasn't born into money, he had to earn it himself? His family was part of the sort of aristocracy of Rome. It was a, would be a long time, another 150 years or so, before you, if you came from absolutely nothing, you could uh, get to the top in, in, in Rome. But he didn't come from the, uh, the rich side of his family. Uh, his, his father was a politician, quite an important politician, but in no way were they in the absolutely super-rich class that Crassus um, came n- not just to join but almost to invent. Yeah, he was born with some money but he um, made, by ancient standards, a stupendous amount of money, and that's what he was able to use in his political career. So he is, that's one of the reasons that attracted me to him. He was the kind of modern politician in the ancient world who is, is worth thinking about. And how did he amass such vast wealth then? He was on the right side of a civil war. His big break was in the early days before he was born, in his father's day, Rome was already riven between, like so many cities of that time and, and since, between essentially the poor and the rich, the rich aristocrats who wanted to hang on to their power and the poorer people who, who wanted to share of it. The poorer people were in quite a strong position because the, the Rome was running out of soldiers. And so the two sides sort of had to do a deal because uh, the aristocrats needed poor people to, you know, to, to, fight, to fight the wars. And, that, and there was a big uh, deal about that. But the two sides were constantly... In, in, in struggle, and sometimes very violently. When Crassus was in his mid-twenties, he had a, a lucky break. He helped the conservative side in these constant power battles to win a big victory over the other side. The dictator who took over, a man called Sulla, gave him a, a lot of rope, or a lot of freedom to buy up and uh, exploit and uh, take advantage of the failures of the of the other side and while a lot of his colleagues were revenging uh, or avenging past crimes and sort of doing extremely unpleasant things to each other crassus was sort of sitting quietly in, at his desk buying up the stuff and uh, using it to buy up more stuff and lending it to other people to help them become powerful so he it was a different kind of the use of power, but he, he, he it did start with him being in the right place at the right time. And is there any way to get a sense of quite how wealthy he was? Could we translate it into modern terms at all? I think that's very, very difficult. The libraries and libraries of books, you know, trying to work out the exact relationship, it's, it's quite hard to do, as, as, as we know, even in quite recent centuries, you know, to work out exactly, you know, what it would be. We don't really know. Sometimes people talk about Cornelius Vanderbilt, the American uh, tycoon. That's the first tycoon, and people still argue about exactly whether he was richer than Bill Gates or not. Crassus, we just know he was the richest man of his time. Uh, and I think by that, we, we should perhaps, in a, in a much smaller economy, where there was much less money about, we, we should equate him with the richest man of our own time. How then did Crassus make this money work for him? How did he use his money to enhance his political status? He invented the point of balance of power, I suppose, was what he um, was particularly associated with. It wasn't so much knocking the other guy out in a boxing match between two people. Caesar and Pompey were two great 
you know, figures in his time. And you know, the traditional way of, of power would be you, you're either Caesar or you're Pompey, and you try and, you know, knock, knock the other guy out. Crassus became a master of, of being a balancer between different sources of power. And he was very, very assiduous at it. He bought support by lending small amounts of money to people, sometimes asking for it back, sometimes not. He gave speeches in courts in favour of people. He was a very hard worker at home. He didn't leave home very much, unlike, again, Caesar and Pompey, who were travelling the world um, making conquests for Rome. He didn't like travelling very much. He didn't seem to leave uh, any of his houses. He only lived in one house. He was quite modest in his personal life, um, very, you know, close to his family and, um, you know, not a showy soldier. But he, he made percentage points all, all, all the time. So if, so if a guy was coming along who was very violent, um, Catiline's a good e- example. He was a poor... Ast- Catiline was a poor aristocrat who wanted all debts to be cancelled. Now, obviously, Crassus didn't want debts to be cancelled, but equally well, he didn't want to be seen as the person who was stopping the cancelling of debts. And he was very, very skillful at sort of, you know, playing one side off against the other. His contemporaries and later um, people who wrote about him understood that. They didn't really appreciate it very much. They didn't think it was very attractive. You know, all the historians tended to prefer people who won battles and won wars. So they, when they wrote about Crassus, it was often rather pejorative. You know, he was nasty and uh, worked behind the scenes, something about sinister about him. There probably was. But um, nonetheless, he exerted a kind of power which subsequently, of course, became much more important for modern tycoons than leading armies around the place. So you mentioned a little earlier um, the two other kind of great figures of late Roman Republic, Pompey and Caesar. How well did uh, Crassus get on with both of those? Pompey was his direct rival. He was more or less the same age as Pompey. And when the big fight back against the populists, I was was just been talking about the great, um, took place under Sulla, Pompey had about three legions that he put together from his father's sort of estate, as it were, Um, and Crassus, who'd been hiding in Spain, um, could barely scrabble together one or half of one. So Pompey was more used to Sulla than Crassus was, and um, Pompey was always a rival of Crassus, and, and Crassus had, you know, I, I don't say disliked Pompey, he had to deal with Pompey throughout his life. Uh, Pompey was not very good in Rome, but very good on the battlefield. Uh, and uh, so whenever Pompey was in Rome... Uh, Crassus tended to do kind of quite well at uh, his expense, but when uh, Pompey was out uh, conquering the East, he was making even more money at certain times than Crassus was. So those were old rivals. Julius Caesar was virtually inv- uh, created by Crassus, um, partly as a counterweight against Pompey. So when Julius Caesar, who was younger, was coming up, um, Crassus lent him money to buy political offices, lent him money to uh, begin his political life and his in his uh, uh, military life. He got him elected as you know, the chief priest, with enormous sums of money um, spent on that. And um, Crassus's game was always to try and use Pompey against Caesar, use Caesar against Pompey, and it all... It, it all was going quite well until, uh, in the best way of these things, it didn't. Now, one uh, quite pivotal early episode, fairly early episode in the book, is the Spartacus Revolt, which Crassus was quite instrumental in putting down. I wonder if you could explain what his role was there. 
His role was to take over when everybody else had failed. Romans were very peculiar about slave revolts. They were were not that uncommon, um, small slave revolts. The the Romans, like any slave society, realised that a slave revolt could be dangerous. But their military pride and general sense of politics didn't want them ever to admit that such a thing as a, as a slave revolt could be any real threat to them. So when Spartacus escaped from his um, gladiator school, they didn't take him very seriously at first, and they sent a sort, of, sort of dad's army from Rome to sort of just, you know, swat him and put him back in his box, and that didn't work. And then they sent a couple of um, sort of junior officers of Pompey, Pompey was away, so he couldn't do it. But I don't think Pompey would have wanted to do it particularly. Uh, he, um, he sent a couple of junior guys, and Spartacus swatted those. By this time, Rome was getting a bit anxious. They had not much money in the treasury. Pompey was away. Spartacus was beginning to rampage. And so Crassus, um, who hadn't really done much fighting since the, the, the one battle that he won for Sulla, which got him into a good position in the first place, hired his own army, paid for his own army. He was famous for his boast that, you know, you weren't really rich unless you could pay for an army out of your own uh, income. So he he did that, and he was a very, very good organiser. And uh, Spartacus, who was obviously had considerable skills as a, a, as a general himself, was, was worn down by Crassus and defeated. And, of course, Crassus became notorious in later years, for us, though actually the Romans, I don't think, cared about it very much, for how he dealt with the survivors of the um, Spartacus Rebellion, who he crucified in a long line um, on the on the Appian Way between Rome and Capua, where the original escape had, had taken place. And uh, in, the, in the 19th and 20th century, when people became more concerned about issues of uh, slavery, slave revolts, you know, how, what, what the ancient world was like about that. And also the communists were very keen on Spartacus. Spartacus became a, a great hero and uh, it was a big deal. But um, for Crassus at the time, politically for him, a bit of a non-event. The, he, he, you didn't get a triumph in ancient Rome, you know, which if you, if you conquered a country, you came back and you had a big triumph, a great street party. Putting down a slave rebellion d- didn't get you anything like that. It got you the most moderate kind of honours. In fact, people were slightly embarrassed that they'd had to do it in the first place. So um, it, was a, it was a mixed blessing for Crassus, but, he, but he, did, he did save Rome when it really was. But the Spartacus was a threat, so he, he did his job, but he didn't get much gratitude for it. Obviously, to modern ears, the idea of mass crucifixion sounds horrendous. Was Crassus unusually cruel for his time, or was, was this kind of thing actually quite common? I don't think he was unusually cool uh it's, it's always very difficult in, a, in this in ancient history because great events even in even in battles and in warfare and you know caesar in gaul you know caesar won a great victory and then you sort of look at it and actually what it really meant was that you know 50,000 people were you know cut down in cold blood and and you know whether something is when I mean, crucifixion was a common punishment for non-citizens you, you weren't allowed to, critic, to, to crucify Roman, Roman citizens um, a, a mass display like that was sort of reminiscent really almost of the, um, the kind of gladiatorial games now it, it was an extreme event and he was very concerned I think to, to the, the, that, it should, that nothing like that should happen again so I mean, every crucifixion is a horrible and cruel, and cruel thing and uh, many thousands uh, is an extraordinary uh, cruelty, but that was 
that was the way they viewed the rights of the slaves. It's, we have to be very careful in the ancient world. You know, we can criticize them and say that, that we disapprove, but we also have to try and un- understand that the system un- un- under in which they d- did what they did. And it, you've got to keep very, very alert. You can't just sort of say, well, he was a... Uh, this was the worst thing that's ever happened, or that it was the right thing that happened. It was just that's what he did, and it was successful at least in uh, ensuring that there was there was never really a serious slave rebellion again. What do you think Crassus's ultimate ambition was? Did he hope to be a dictator like Caesar would become, or was he happy to be one of the main players in Rome? I don't think Caesar wanted to be a dictator. Uh, originally, it was only quite late in Caesar's um, career that he realised that that was the only option that was open to him. So certainly, I don't think Crassus wanted to be uh, a dictator. I mean, Crassus had worked and had started under Sulla, in a, who, who had made himself the first dictator of Rome, and it hadn't really gone very well. Sulla had got, become very extreme in the conservative. It taken all too much power for the people, and Crassus and Pompey had to give the people a lot of the, a lot of the power back. And I think you know Crassus would have realised that actually there were you know downsides in uh, in giving all the power to one person. There's no evidence that he that he wanted everything for himself. But he, in that classic way of the businessman tycoon, he didn't want somebody else to get it. You know, so he he didn't want Pompey certainly to be the, uh, the, uh, the a dictator in Rome. Pompey turned out. In, in Rome itself, though not on the battlefield, to be rather um, a bit lazy. He came home back to Rome to have a bit of a rest. He didn't want to do all the politicking necessary to keep himself top dog in Rome. So he didn't do very well when he, when he was there. Um, though he would, I think he quite liked to be known as, as, as the first man. And for a lot of the period, he really, he, he, he was. You know, the new Alexander, he was the great conqueror. Caesar, um, say, created by Crassus in part in order to balance off Pompey, um, just got himself backed into a hole and um, realising that he couldn't actually continue unless he became the first man. But by that time, Crassus was dead. That's a big, big point about Crassus' life is he died. Once he died, um, we can talk about his death, but uh, once, once he died, um, that balance between, between Caesar and Pompey had been taken away. So Caesar ended up having to fight Pompey, and then when he defeated Pompey, found himself as a dictator and the sole man and didn't really know how to to deal with that. And that then led to Caesar's assassination. But uh, at that particular time we're talking about, when Crassus was at his heights, no, it wasn't the question of looking to be a dictator. So you you alluded in in that last answer to Crassus's death. And so he he had this, this kind of final adventure where he led this campaign against the Parthians. What what do we know about the Parthian Empire at this point? Well, we don't know as much as we'd like to, and perhaps more importantly, Crassus didn't know very much about it either. Um, it, to, to a degree, one's reminded a little bit about you know, of, of Putin and, and Ukraine. You know, I think that the, he sort of thought he knew about it. He thought it, he knew it would be quite an easy thing to, to, to conquer that nobody else had got around to. He knew it was very big. Um, but it didn't really have very very fixed boundaries. It sort of ran all the way down from the Caspian Sea, maybe as far away as China. It was a sort of an enormous space occupied by um, these Parthian kings who'd come down from the, the the Scythian north and were, from the Roman point of view, were very sort of barbaric and rather and, and rather mysterious. But but in fact, they were quite a sophisticated part Greek, part local group 
who, though Crassus didn't know it, were extremely advanced in many aspects of, of, of military and uh, political life. But they were very much a an autocracy, that a royal family, the Arsacids, who mainly sort of squabbled amongst themselves and fought each other. They had a, a sort of slave army. Uh, the Romans sort of vaguely knew that and thought that was something they could look down on. Obviously, you'd be able to beat an army of slaves. So but they didn't really know very much. And... Um, our knowledge is a little bit patchy too, but people we did write about it, and particularly after the, after the Parthians had defeated um, Crassus, uh, it became important for Romans to try and understand them. And, and, and by the time Julius Caesar's son became the the first emperor of Rome, sort of somehow getting back the eagles from Crassus's lost legions, and um, somehow making amends for Crassus's defeat became one of his top priorities and one of his uh, greatest achievements. So, um, but the actual knowledge about what was going on in Parthia was quite low, and, and that was one of Crassus's big, big, big problems. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But in fact, th- th- they've killed um, the king. And so this, this, this scene d- d- demanded a head. And uh, the story is that um, Cassius's head arrived at the, perfectly the right time for the be the plot in this play. So you mentioned earlier how Crassus tended to like being in Rome. That was where he was strongest. Why then, at a relatively advanced age, did he decide to lead this campaign against Parthia? By that stage, he was the third party in what was called the three-headed monster of uh, Crassus, Caesar and, and Pompey. And it was becoming very clear to him, I think, that he was he was falling down the, the, the league. You know, he certainly wasn't the top one and he was the third one. And perhaps if they'd sort of recast the league, he might have been chucked out altogether because Caesar's power was, 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 so, was so great and Pompey was, was Pompey too, has still had a lot of his old, old power. So Crassus decided that he needed a, a military success of his own. Um, he hoped to make more money out of it and to uh, bring back a lot of uh, gold and pearls and all the stuff that they uh, Romans liked to think they could get from the East and often, and often did. But he also wanted the prestige you know, for himself and for his family. I mean, his son he took he took on Parthia. It was very important for him that there was you know beginnings of an idea of a dinner of a dynasty or at least a, a, a you know a powerful aristocratic family, which in his much more powerful than his his ancestors. But no, he, he by that stage the soft power of just buying and bribing and restlessly balancing um, different interests in Rome was running out of Rome. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And he, he felt he could only be anywhere near the top if he matched Pompey and Caesar on the battlefield. Now, Rome had a pretty formidable army at this point in time. How then were the Parthians able to defeat Crassus? Crassus led a considerable army into, in, into Parthia, uh, and he had some initial successes on, on the border uh, west of the Euphrates. He didn't really know what he was fighting against. I think that he probably believed that he would be fighting against an old king of Parthia who was a sort of cynical eastern ruler, as the Romans liked to see them, and that he would be able to perhaps win a couple of battles, uh, agree a deal, cede some territory. N- nothing, you know, he, I'm sure he talked about you know, conquering the whole of Parthia, but it was a vast uh, area. I very much doubt he, in his heart he really thought he could do that. He wanted to win some battles and, and, and do some good deals, and he thought that he'd be able to do that. That was his characterization of Parthia. When he got there... He led his army um, into the desert looking for the Parthian army that he was going to defeat. And the Parthian army at that stage, the one that he faced, was an army such that he had never seen before in his life, and nobody, nobody really had. We're not quite sure whether this was deliberate on behalf of the Parthians, who were fighting another war in Armenia, and maybe they took all their infantry soldiers with them to Armenia. But what Crassus um, faced was an army with almost no legionaries of the kind that he recognised. It had um, enormous armed men um, on huge horses, the Greeks called cataphracts, um, almost like a medieval knights with huge spears, which he didn't think looked very looked very unwieldy and would be about as useful as elephants. You know, they might be a bit of a shock troop, but hardly going to cause much trouble. And then they had thousands of slaves riding little ponies with bows and arrows, which again, you know, the Romans were familiar with archers and they're familiar with cavalry, but they were very secondary in the Roman way of um, of thinking, mainly because uh, cavalry and archers, they always ran out of ammunition. You know, you can only fire so many arrows and then you had to, you had to go back and, buy, you know, they weren't a very effective long-term uh, weapon and the legionaries just stood there put their shields up waited till the the cavalry and the archers had run out of steam and, and went away but um these guys who who uh, 
Crassus' face were led by a man called Sirenas, who you might almost describe as a sort of Zelensky of the desert, because he was, you know, he Crassus didn't think that he would be remotely able to deal with his army uh, in, in his place. But in fact, he knew the terrain extremely well. And he had seems to have worked out this scheme, which no one had ever done before and the Romans had never seen, of using camels uh, in, a, in a long train to bring up new arrows all the time. It, it sounds a little bit comic, but but in fact it was a devastating changer, really, for, for, for that particular battle because it mean, meant that these archers with these very, very powerful bows. The Romans weren't very interested in archery. They weren't very interested in bows. They didn't, seem to, didn't know much about arrows, uh, which, you know, work differently in different atmospheres and bows that work differently in different temperatures. This was something that the Parthians really knew a lot about. And so the, his army was just subjected to a, a non-stop un- onslaught of, of, of arrow fire. And when he tried to break out and to tackle them with his own cavalry, led by his son, that they too were sort of bottled up and uh, and smashed to pieces by these arrows. So it was a very uh, shocking defeat, you know, based partly on this technology and partly on the imagination of this man, Sirenus, who was leading, leading this very unorthodox kind of army. I mean, you could compare it, if you like, to the sort of Americans in Vietnam or any time where, you know, a traditional you know, set of soldiery meets people who are a bit more inventive and a bit more imaginative and a bit make better use of the local terrain. And so Crassus wasn't expecting that. He wasn't used to it. Um, and uh, he uh, suffered this humiliating defeat as a result. And so after Crassus was defeated... He, I think he kind of sort of turned back or tried to get away, but then, then his death seemed almost the way you describe it in the book, almost more like a mishap or an accident. Is that fair to say? Yes, he tried to escape. Once the main battle had been won by the Parthians, the Parthians didn't seem to like to fight at night, and so he got a bit of a breather. He could decide, you know, w- w- what to do, and he decided to make a break for it. And, and three groups of them made a separate break out of this, which was partly to confuse the Parthians. They thought that the Parthians would have obviously wanted to have Crassus. They wanted Crassus dead or alive, really, and the king back in the capital would have wanted um, Crassus. So so Serenus, the successful Parthian general, had to bring Crassus back one way way or another. And so they all um, broke out in different ways, and Serenus then had a bit of a problem. He had to find Crassus in one or other of these three big groups or even just general scattered um, bands. But again, he was lucky because there was a Roman mistake. The uh, Cassius, a guy called Cassius Longinus, who was uh, Crassus's sort of second-in-command, though a rather dissident second-in-command, not always very supportive. If you remember, he was the guy who went on to be also very close to Julius Caesar and, and was one of his uh, assassins. So Cassius, Cassius wasn't the most reliable person, although he was very, ta- very talented. And by mistake, Serenus went to one place and asked to speak to Crassus. And what Cassius or the Romans should have said was, who do you, what do you mean? You know, he's not here, or we don't know where he is. But in fact, he said, "Oh yes, he'll, he'll be down shortly." <laughs> and so, um, so he um, 
Sumanus got the most important information that he needed, which is where Crassus actually was. Uh, I, I don't think Crassus came down exactly shortly, but but the, he, he did come. He did come down for some kind of parley and a, a truce of the kind of thing which. Again, the Romans normally thought if they, even if they lost a battle, they could always win the argument afterwards because essentially they would say, look, we'll leave you alone if you let us go and you don't, don't mess with us. You'd be lucky this time, but next time we'll bring a massive force and destroy you. So even at that stage, he probably thought there was, you know, he wasn't totally despondent. But yes, and, then, and you say there was a bit of an argument over a horse and who was on the horse and who wasn't and who was leading it and a bit of a scuffle. And in the scuffle, um, Crassus was uh, was killed. Now, there's there's a legend that Crassus's body was defiled in quite a, a pointed way. Do you give that much credence? The story goes that his head and hands were, were, had to be taken back to the king uh, of Parthia. That was obviously very important for Cyrenus to be able to do that, because otherwise that, the main point of defeating the Romans was to defeat Crassus. It, this was Crassus's war. Even the Romans weren't very keen on this invasion of Parthia. It was only because Pompey, Caesar and Crassus had agreed that each one of them could do more or less what they wanted to do, as long as they didn't mess with the others, that he was in Parthia in the, fir- in, 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 in the first place. So it was very important that they, it was Crassus's war, therefore they had to bring back Crassus's body and, and his head most importantly, so you could see it was him. It was brought back to the capital, and the story goes that the Parthians were watching a performance of a very sophisticated Greek play called the Bacchae by, by Euripides. This was a bit of, probably a bit of a shock to the Romans, who, who basically treated the Parthians as kind of barbarians. This kind of Greek tragedy, the Bacchae, um, was not something I think had ever been shown in Rome, um, but it was being shown in Parthia. And uh, at the end of the Bacchae, you need a, a head as a prop, because the king, who is the sort of anti, the hero of, of, of the play, is, is brought down and he's torn apart. His mother thinks that she's sort of fighting some mountain lions and is maddened and a crazed group of women. Uh, but in fact, th- they've killed um, the king. And so this this, this scene d- d- demanded a head. And uh, the story is that um, Cassius's head arrived at the, perfectly the right time for there to be the plot in this play. And, th- and then the which is possible it's probably a bit exaggerated it seems very unlikely that the crassus head would come back exactly at the time when they needed it for this play but it's not impossible that uh, they needed it a few days later or, or something that per- seems perfectly reasonable it's also of course the story that um, at the same time or later they filled the uh, head with uh, molten gold to, to gain to display as a kind of, as a trophy to show you know w- what happens uh, to, to the very greedy who come looking for other people's gold? You ask how credible it is. Well, once Crassus had been a, had been defeated, and uh, a lot of the bad stories about him were, were told by Cassius, the, the guy who eventually killed Julius Caesar, who escaped. So he, he began from then on to get a pretty bad uh, press. And so when people started writing about the, the great Romans of that time, mainly Plutarch. Uh, Pompey and Caesar, although they both suffered their calamities, were much, in much higher repute than, 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 than Crassus. The Greeks and Romans didn't really approve of, of greed. I mean, they and, and making wealth was not very respected. It was something you had to do, but it wasn't. So Crassus got a worse and worse reputation. 
Uh, and uh, this story of the head stuffed with gold was just too good to, to miss. Whether it was true, uh, it seems perfectly likely sort of thing that the Parthians would do. Um, do we have really good sources to exactly what they did? No, we don't. But um, a lot of ancient history is like that. And what was Crassus's legacy for Rome, do you think? Well, his death completely changed the political balance. And without him, without the, him in this triangle, this three-headed monster, you ended up in the, with the boxing match that I described at the, begin, at the beginning, which is the more traditional way of running politics. As, you know, you've got two people and one of them needs to knock out the other. And that, of course, is precisely what happened. So Crassus's legacy, in one sense, was the, was the vacuum which was now just sucking in Crassus, Caesar and Pompey to fight each other. And, of course, Caesar um, defeated Pompey, and then um, Caesar found himself really with nowhere to go. The three-headed monster was gone. He was the only bit of the monster left. And the, and so he became the dictator almost by default. I mean, you can argue that he became power-mad and crazy, but I think Caesar, if, if Caesar had, could have ruled things another way, he, he might easily would have done. But... Um, so Crassus's legacy was the absence of Crassus. And do you see any figures in later history who are comparable to Crassus? When I was writing this book, there's a certain amount of Russian uh, parallels kept on, on coming, really. The, the, the first, about how he actually made his money. I remember the, the only sort of Russian oligarch of, that I knew at all well was a man called Boris Berezovsky who was a very controversial person. He ended up with a, in a sticky end himself. And when people criticised him for having, as they said, looted all the aluminium and all the steel and all the, you know, made so much money um, as a result of being in the politics in the right place, he said, look, actually, I wasn't the only person who could have done this. You know, you had to decide to do it. You had to take the risk of borrowing money over, you know, overseas, buying the stuff. You never knew whether you'd really be able to keep it, whether the other side might come back and take it off you, whether the people who'd taken it off might might do you in as well. And so don't think that we, this stuff was just lying around, you know, for people to, um, to, to just pick up. It wasn't, you know, some people had the guts and the, and the appetite for risk to do it. And, and many others didn't. Of course, some were nowhere near even having any chance, you know. But, but nonetheless, the, the oligarchs would often defend themselves by saying, well, that's what I did. And so that stuck, you know, when Crassus made his first fortune, it wasn't perhaps as easy as, as later critics made it seem because he didn't know that the people he'd taken the stuff off might come back and get it from him, that Sulla might only last a few weeks, that, you know, he would... So he was a risk-taker, and, um, and and that seemed to me to be parallel with um, what happened uh, uh, after the fall of, of the Soviet Union, and indeed at, at the time of the um, dissolution of the monasteries too, when huge amounts of resources were suddenly available for people in the right place at the right time and the right appetite f f for risk. So that, that was, that's kind of one power that was stuck in my mind. And, of course, the invasion. It's impossible at the moment not to, to, to compare the confidence at which uh, Crassus went into a country that he thought he knew about but didn't uh, against uh, uh, an enemy that he thought he knew but didn't, uh, and, um, and not to compare that with Putin in, in, in Ukraine, um, because 
Zelensky's unexpected to, to Putin and to a lot of other people's imagination and resourcefulness and ability to do things in different ways has completely surprised Putin and just as Serenus has surprised Crassus. And although he's part, I'm not sure how useful these the, the parallels are, but it's just that when you're writing the story, you, sometimes you just you, you can't escape them. So Russia, in, in both cases, the beginning and end of Crassus's career was what uh, struck me as the the strongest parallel, yeah. That was Peter Stottard. Crassus, the first tycoon, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.